Hello and welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Frank, and per usual, I'm hosting this on Spotify Greenroom. Hope everyone is enjoying the end of their week. It's another beautiful day in Portland. Uh, and as we get even closer to the start of Sixers training camp, where I continue to bring on some guests of people who cover other teams and get their thoughts on their team in lar- at large and get some other Sixers stuff as well. Uh, today, the plan is to bring on Rohan Kati, who is the co-host of the Eurostep podcast over at Blue Wire Network. Uh, and we'll talk through the Bucks. We'll get some of his thoughts on the Sixers. Um, but again, kind of similar format to the stuff I've done on the Nets and the Lakers. Largely going to be focused on the Bucks and get a little bit of stuff on the Sixers. But, uh, you know, we're still a little bit ways off until more Sixers news comes, until something with the Ben Simmons, uh, you know, situation unfolds. And we'll continue to uh, work on this. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. Hope uh, this has been enjoyable for everyone over the past few months. But uh, Rohan is here in the room. We're going to uh, get get started. Excited to talk with him. Hey, Rohan. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little tired, but I'm uh, I'm doing well. Excited to talk some bucks with you. It's been uh, what five months, four and a half months since we last we last talked. We. Um, we previewed one of the Buck Sixers games, uh, and I can't remember if it was I can't remember if it was the the one that was good or the two that were not so uh, good. I think but... it was before the mini series. Okay, yeah. So those those one those weren't as fun. We unfortunately had some. Uh, <laughs> I think Simmons missed both. Joel missed one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Bucks uh, kicked the Sixers' butts. But uh, anyhow, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk through a bunch of different things here. You know, the Bucks are obviously you know one of the most intriguing teams coming off a title. Um, You've had a couple of months now to process it, or a month and a half or so. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you look ahead to this season, like how do you, how do you kind of view that title? You know, some of the residual effects. How do you think it can help this team, and maybe anything that might, I don't want to say hurt, because I mean, winning titles is or a bad thing, but like anything that you think might not be as ideal. So, how do you view this as kind of as an impactful thing moving forward? Because it's obviously going to play some sort of role, but I'm curious, kind of what you what you think of it and how it, you know, how it impacts things moving forward. I think it gives the team the necessary mindset that they've been lacking the last couple of years before they actually won the title and they were facing just constant postseason disappointments year after year. You now know, if you're the Bucks what exactly it takes. You see that experience. You see that sort of mindset lending itself towards Milwaukee during the regular season especially because even last regular season, we saw a different approach than regular seasons in the past. They weren't just gunning gunning for wins all the time given they mm-hmm. still had a pretty like they had, i believe they were the third seed in the east so they still had a good record but they weren't like going for 60 wins again like they did in their first season under mike budenholzer they were just mm-hmm. going for what they can do in the postseason what's going to help them in the postseason that mindset i think is going to carry over even more now this season be- considering they did win the title because they know exactly what they need mm-hmm. to do now yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like you you they tried the, they tried a couple of different things. You know, at first it was let's get, let's get all these wins we can, and then that didn't quite work two years in a row. And then it's like all right, let's backtrack a little bit, let's experiment. You know, that was the big thing. It was it was there was a lot more experimentation in the, both the offense and defense. And now they know that that formula can work. So there's 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 a confidence there to it. Um, and you mentioned Budenholzer. I'm curious. You know, there was a lot of talk about him throughout you know the last year or so. Um, and obviously, he just he got rewarded with an extension. Um, but how did you see growth out of him? You know, I think you can talk about growth from players, whether it was, you know, Chris Milton finding his stride in the second half of the playoffs, Giannis, you know, I think becoming a little more adept offensively in the half court. But, like, 
I think I think Bud grew as a coach too. And if if you agree with that, how do you how did you see him kind of improve some of the things he can do to you know help help him kind of become a championship caliber coach? I mean, I know you, I guess that's kind of a very vague like label um, because every year is different. But how did you see him grow this year? And how do you think that can carry forward uh, into the into next season? The Bucks looks to defend. Does the Bucks look to defend their title? I mean, first and foremost, I was very very anti Bud coming off of the the postseason loss in the bubble, I was saying he's not fit to be the Milwaukee Bucks head coach. And I'd still stand by that take, considering what I knew at the time. Mm-hmm. We were seeing two years in a row of just not really budging. There were a lot of missed opportunities there, given there were some roster limitations. But there was a lot of just fixation on focusing on the same things. And coming into this regular season, with the or last regular season, I should say, with a revamped roster and postseason expectations, postseason goals. They he knew specifically what he needed to do because it's not like he's unaware of the outside noise. There were mm-hmm. there was a lot of noise even during this postseason run about like, oh, Rick Carlisle's available. Would that be a good <laughs> option if if Milwaukee loses in this Brooklyn series? Like if Milwaukee loses game seven, like there's a chance that Rick Carlisle's the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> we saw a lot of growth, but that started in the regular season last season. We saw, like I mentioned, they weren't just gunning for wins, given every player was still trying their hardest. But there were a lot of different schematic adjustments that we saw different. They were experimenting with different lineups, different uh, sort of styles of play. And that was sort of uh, brought to a head when P.J. Tucker was acquired uh, right before the trade deadline because he mm-hmm. brought a lot of versatility offensively and defensively in terms of your lineups. You can go big, you can go play small, which is still playing big for Milwaukee. There's just a lot of different defensive things you can do. You can size PJ up, you can size him down. There was just so much you could do. And Bud was taking full advantage of that. He was experimenting, like you mentioned earlier, during the regular season. And it just it came to fruition during this uh probably the latter half of the postseason, I should say, because they mm-hmm. didn't really need to do anything against Miami. <laughs> that was yeah. an easy series for Milwaukee. There was a lot of just pent-up energy there that the players <laughs> needed to exhaust. And even the Brooklyn series, they they played awful. I had multiple <laughs> mental breakdowns during that series because of how awful yeah. they were playing. So especially during the Hawks series and then the Suns series, that's when he sort of found his stride. And... It's just hopefully that sort of trend continues because, like I mentioned, now they know that that formula works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I, and, you know, I, I think the experimentation is, is a big thing. I loved how in the second half of the playoff in the last two series, he, they experimented a ton with pick and roll coverages. Like I, I can't remember which game it was. There was one game. I think it might have been game one against the Hawks when they when they lost, and people were like, like what what was up with their scheme and stuff? Like or like they didn't they didn't change. It's like did we or like maybe it was the first six quarters of that series. People were like. Like the rigidity is killing them, you know. It's like are we watching the same series? Like, <laughs> like they tried five or six, seven different coverages in the first six quarters against Trey Young and company. So uh, I thought that was good. I liked how you know at the end of every series, the last two rounds, um, or I guess last, well, the two cl- the two biggest series, I think, were the, which were the Nets and and the Suns. Not to discredit the Hawks, but I think you know just giving. I think those are two of the ones that where it felt like the most pressure at times. Yes. Um, like I loved how he was like, okay, our big three of Drew, Giannis, and Middleton are going to play 40 minutes a night, and then we're going to largely play a 7.2-man rotation, and we're going to mix and match. You know, PJ's going to play, Burke's going to play, but like 
But sometimes it'll be a Bobby game. It'll be a Bobby quarter. It'll be like the lineup that the other team is putting out will make sense for him. It'll make sense for Brooke. It'll make sense for Pat. So I thought that was really good too, that, you know, there's always been this idea, not always, for the last few years, it's been the idea that, you know, you know, Bud protects his stars too much. And I think at times that's definitely been the case, but I really liked as that, as these playoffs went on, he was good about, okay, we're going to ride with our best three players and then we're going to have confidence in, in a couple other guys and, I mean, this is the third time he played Jeff Teague too much. I'm not going to let him off the hook for that. But um, I think he was really good about those last two starter spots being really flexible depending on game flow, what the other lineup was on the, for the opposition, things like that. So that was really impressive for me. And I think that's – if you're looking for maybe a – you know, I think, you know, generally speaking, the narrative entering this year is Brooklyn is a team to beat, and I, I get that. And I, I generally kind of fall into that camp. If you're looking for a reason the Bucks can – and we close that perceived gap. One of them is, I think, Bud is a better playoff coach now than he was when he entered that that Buck series. And um, you know, obviously, the first couple games, it wasn't just Bud who was struggling. You know, Chris was struggling. Drew was not on his game. Giannis wasn't great in game two, if I recall. But like, Bud was not very good. And so I think that's that's something. If you're looking for like, and I don't think that, I don't even know if the, like I feels like a slight to say like the Bucks have to like find a way to close the gap. But I generally think the narrative is that the a healthy Nets team is is kind of that. That team, if you're looking, so if you're looking for a reason the Bucks can, you know, be that be that team to be, it would be that Bud is a better coach now than I think he was five months ago. Um, is that a fair assessment? Would you kind of agree with with that being a feather in the cap of, of the Bucks is maybe a reason that the gap isn't as, as big as we think between the Bucks and the Nets among among most? I, I'm sure I know it differs between every person, but yeah, I'd say that's probably one advantage the Bucks have. I'd still probably fall into the same camp that Brooklyn is the team to beat and. It's it's uh it's not very difficult to make that argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I don't yeah I don't want to be too again like I I I had Tom West on I think last week and we did our tiers and I I kind of had Milwaukee in that one B tier and you know in in Brooklyn tier one obviously I try to be I try to be fairly like measured about that because I have been kind of a a buck skeptic and that largely looked pretty incorrect and so I don't want to come off as like some big hater or anything like that um, but. Yeah, I, I think I think Bud's growth is, is a reason for that. Um, you know, I, I think I think like you know, just, I was impressed by Steve Nash's handling of a lot of things last year. It was a weird year for him. Not to say that like you know that's just kind of I, the, the coaching matchup isn't always a huge deal, but I, I think that's an interesting kind of wrinkle there. The growth we saw from Bud, but um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that a Bucks a legitimate Bucks starter Dante Divincenzo missed the final three rounds of this this playoff series, and um, he's a very good player. Like I mean, he's just a, a quality starter. Um, or quality rotation player at worst. So um, what do you think he brings to this team that it missed the second round to be on? Because I think that's probably one of the biggest, you know, ways that you could really have a lot of hope in this team repeating is that like, you know, Dante brings them kind of a nice little pop on both ends. So what, what is it about his game that you think really kind of this team missed at times? Obviously it didn't matter in the end because they, they hosted the trophy, but what did they miss at times? What did you find, what, like, when did you find yourself thinking, oh, man, it'd be great if we had Dante at this moment or in this lineup, things like that? Well, I think you hit just the bare minimum on this earlier, and that is he is not Jeff Teague in the <laughs> sense of guard depth because the Bucks just yeah. had absolutely no guard depth, like credible guard depth. And that was that was an issue even during the regular season, even with Dante in the fold. And when Dante went down, it's like, oh, boy, they're just going to have to play massive because if you need to take someone off the floor – it's going to be a guy like Jeff Teague who's going to see minutes. You're going to have to size Pat Connison up, even though he should probably be sized down. It's just you run into a lot of issues. So just depth. Depth is the most important part. But also, he is very, very dynamic. And he adds an element of like sort of, not, 
I don't want to say like vertical spacing because it's Dante, but in the sense like he will move without the ball. And him and Pat Connaughton and Bobby Portis, slower, are probably the only players on this current Bucks team who are very, very good at that. Like Bobby is great at relocating for threes. Pat Connaughton's always going to find open seams. Dante was another one of those guys, and he mm-hmm. was actually starting to shoot the ball pretty well. He was a shade under 38% in the regular season. And on his career high in attempts for a game, over five a game from deep, it's just he brings that while also bringing great on-ball and off-ball defense. He's always getting a passing lanes. He's always reading the opposing offense really, really well. He's a smart defender. He's a good defender. He just brings a certain pop, like you had mentioned, mm-hmm. It's that was missing, especially because, like, PJ, who slotted in for him in the starting lineup, he brings it on defense. He absolutely brought nothing on offense aside <laughs> from uh, offensive rebounds because mm-hmm. he couldn't hit a three to save his life. And you're, you're just not asking him to do anything else. Even he admitted, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't do much on offense if I'm spending all my energy on defense. Dante mm-hmm. will give you a mix of both, which I think bodes well for this team because – they obviously will welcome the defense. That's the identity of this team. They're built around their defense. But also, you know, off, scoring the ball helps too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we, as, as someone who covers the Sixers, I absolutely know the, the idea that scoring the ball could help. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't score the ball very much, and they, that's why they were second round out. Um, but yeah, then the thing, you know, kind of I think that you're mentioning with the vertical spacing idea is, you know, one of the big changes the Bucks made this year, which obviously you're, you're well aware of, is they, they started slotting more guys in the dunker spot, you know, uh, in the, in the regular season. And, and Dante was one of those guys who played there a lot, you know, um, you know, Pat played there somewhat when he was in the game. They tried to play PJ there, but he just doesn't have kind of that finishing acumen. Dante can play there. He's pretty quick off the ground. So I think that's something that they kind of missed. Like, yeah, you're not throwing the ball to Dante and like having him finish above the rim, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's a presence of like, interior scoring value there that he offers because he's so good at kind of finding the right, the proper pocket to inhabit in that dunker spot. Cause it's a large area, roughly speaking. Um, and so I thought that was good. Like, and I, I just really like watching Dante play. Um, he, he's a guy who I think to me makes a lot of errors of commission. Like when he screws up, it's because he did something. It's not because he didn't do something. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily always like great, but I, but I appreciate that about him. Um, I just think he's really fun. I think you saw some offensive growth a little bit this year as well, maybe a little more comfort working off dribble handoffs, maybe improving his passing just a little bit. Um, and then obviously he's got, he's someone who that they could run those, those inverted pick and rolls with Giannis to get downhill, um, which, which they missed because, you know, Dante can, you know, he's not like some, he's not Bryn Forbes as an off movement shooter, but um, he can do a little bit in terms of, he doesn't have to be, just be stationary. Um, whereas PJ does, if you talk, talk about a big difference there, um, Dante can at least shoot a little bit off movement, uh, whereas PJ is largely kind of relegated to those corners. So, um, I think that's probably like, that's, I don't know. Like, I, I think that's probably either the first or second biggest way that, that Milwaukee can be a significantly better playoff team next year is just having Dante again. Um, but the other, the other thing I'm curious about is where are you at with, with Drew offensively? Because obviously he was tremendous defensively. Um, and I shouldn't say, I should just say as a scorer, because I mean, he had some really, really nice playmaking games throughout the playoffs. Like I think, I think the last four games of you know in of the finals. And I know assist turnover ratio wasn't great, but I thought Bort was borne out well through. Like, I think he was had like ten assists, like fewer than three turnovers per game. Um, and he was handling the ball a lot. So um, point being is, where do you kind of where do you stand on Drew? 
in terms of a scorer in the playoffs because he'd had because he was very good in the regular season and he had some big games as a score in the postseason. But for the most part, he wasn't great putting the ball in the basket in an effective manner. Um, do you think that's something that could be kind of rectified with another year under his belt, in Milwaukee? Because I think that's probably the biggest you know way that they could maybe close that perceived gap between Brooklyn and Milwaukee. You know, I know Nikias Duncan is still proponent of Milwaukee, you know, being the favorite out east. Some of it's health related you explain with Brooklyn, but we were talking and he, he pointed out that Drew probably will not be as bad as he was offensively in that Brooklyn series, which I hadn't really considered. So how do you feel about Drew's progress? Is there anything that you saw that maybe you think he figured out and the ball just wasn't going in? Or like how do you feel about that whole thing? Because I think that's a pretty big storyline if you're looking for a reason to be to say like the Bucks are clearly kind of not clearly, but the Bucks are the team to beat still in the East. Well, if you just want to look at uh, one thing, it's the second year in the system. It's the second year with this team. It's the second year with Bud with all these guys. So you're going to be more acclimated to what's going on. I think why he struggled a lot in the playoffs is he offensively, when he did not have it going, it did not matter. He was still getting to his spots. He was still trying to get going, which is something I've come to learn to respect in terms of just NBA basketball in the sense like you're not scared to really go get yours even mm-hmm. if it's not really falling for you in a given game series whatever it may be he's still going to try to do that like for example in game seven I believe against Brooklyn he was oh for he was he was going he was very cold from deep and then he goes and hits a big three to tie it up late mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter He's just going to keep doing that. It's not really his game. Obviously, like the big mm-hmm. comparison is like Drew Holiday and Eric Bledsoe. And oh, Eric Bledsoe, he's <laughs> he fell apart because he's not a good shooter. People are just leaving him alone. Yeah, sure, that's fine. Drew Holiday is still not an amazing three point shooter. He's better than Bledsoe. Like he's shot. What did he shoot? Thirty nine percent from three in the regular season. That surprises mm-hmm. me when I look at that. <laughs> but he, it's still not his game. It's still not what he's going to do he's not going to hit you with like off the dribble threes very often and it's just not going to be great what he likes to do he you mentioned his assists that's what he really likes to do and what he needs to get better at is sort of being a playmaker and that's where it sort of was a little bit of an issue with him in the postseason because when things were getting tough chris was being tasked with being a lot doing a lot of playmaking there were issues we talked about this on our pod there were a lot of games where it's like okay, why can't both Chris and Drew be very, very productive in the same game at once? It was either one or the other. And we sort of reasoned mm-hmm. through it and thought, because if one isn't getting as many playmaking touches, they're being sort of asked to not do much and just stand in the corner. And when Chris is having the ball handling responsibilities and Drew is being asked to stay in the corner, that's not really Drew's game. That's not mm-hmm. what he's good at. So... It's sort of about finding a balance and whether Mike Budenholzer and this team can find a balance between that because we've seen that in the past. There was a lot of issues between Bud and Chris Middleton in their first year about what Chris wanted to do in terms of ball handling, getting to his spots. And mm-hmm. then they, they ironed those up pretty quickly. Uh, not pretty quickly, within like a year or so. But that sort of trajectory can occur with Bud and Drew and just being able to fit all these pieces together and get that balance and playmaking between Drew, Chris, and Giannis, because I think that's what's unlocking. That's the key to unlocking Drew's offense, is finding a balance in playmaking between the big three. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, I think not, you know, there were a lot of, I think the, the Chris and Giannis connection, you know, is is really, really good. It's been that way for a while now. Um, but I, I, I didn't always feel like the big three offensively always harmonized. It felt sometimes like a little bit of, 
one person, two person, three person, um, or then you run the Chris and Drew two man or the Chris and Giannis two man game. But it didn't always feel like Drew harmonized as well as he could have. So I think that would be a, a big reason that they could close, they could kind of you know be the be the team to beat again. Um, and as we mentioned, Chris and Drew, uh, I do want to take a moment uh, during the I think it was game two of the finals. Uh, I tweeted that uh, the biggest reason the Bucks couldn't uh, weren't made weren't going to win the title, whatever was going, where they were down 2-0, uh, was because Chris and Drew were, were not good enough to be your second, third best player. I would like to own up to that being incorrect here. Um, clearly, they were good enough to win a title because it happened. They both will be getting shiny rings here in the next couple of months. Um, I've gotten some flack for it. And I understand that. I just want to own up to it. Um, I was wrong. I get things wrong all the time. But that was a pretty uh, hasty and uh, bold take by me. I don't think it was necessarily like – I didn't think it was such a hot take, but I definitely got a little bit swept up in the moment. So – here I am, Jackson Franks, and I was wrong about Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday not being good enough to be your second and third best player on title team because they are now. There is a shiny trophy in the Bucks, uh, in the Bucks, uh, wherever it is. I don't know. There's a tr- in, in the organization. They have it, uh, but I was wrong. So uh, I just want to get that out there. Want to own up to it. But um, shifting gears, I'm curious. You know, um, where do you think they will miss PJ Because obviously he now is is on the Heat, and uh, you know the Heat. I. I think we'll be very good. I, I don't think they're as good as Milwaukee, but they shall be good. Uh, but anyhow, where do you think they'll miss him the most? And then you mentioned some of the defense, and he wasn't—he was quite bad offensively for long stretches. But the defense did matter. So, and he, I think he did a good job of taking advantage of when they would try and hide, or when the Suns try to hide CP or Booker on, on him. I think he did a good job of crashing the glass there offensively. But um, where do you think they'll miss Peter Tucker the most? Kind of what did he bring, um, and kind of your eyes and how he helped you know advance the the Bucks championship goals. Well, I think they'll miss him the most in terms of lineup versatility because he was the key to allowing them to sort of do whatever they want in terms of sizing, whether they wanted to have like him as the five, Giannis as the four, Giannis as the four, PJ as the five, whatever. You could slide mm-hmm. PJ up. to. They played him at the two at points. It was very, very strange to see some <laughs> of the lineups that were thrown out there that somehow had a semblance of success. It was... Uh, it, it was... It was weird. I'll say that. But <laughs> the Bucks won by being weird. And PJ was a big part of that. So I think they'll miss that a lot in terms of just versatility. And obviously, the defensive acumen. It, that is tough to replace. That is very, very tough to replace. He has the experience in guarding different players. He has the experience in guarding just play, like playing for different teams, seeing different schemes. He's he's gone against KD years for years now. He's gone against all of these guys for years now. He knows what he's doing against those guys. And a lot of the guys in the Bucks now are unproven in that regard. So if you're looking at the Bucks and the Nets being the best two teams and on path to meet in the conference finals, because that always happens. The two best teams always meet in the conference finals. Uh, that matchup is going to be interesting without pj tucker it'll be weird to see who guards kd now in when the bucks did play the nets they threw a lot of different coverages at kd given they really only needed to worry about him so they could just mix and match who they were putting on him they were never giving him the same looks consistently but pj was a big part of that pj was the innings leader per se on Mm -hmm. kevin durant because you don't want to get your uh like Chris and Drew in big time foul trouble. That's that was PJ's job. PJ is going to be the guy who will play some solid defense while also picking up the ticky tack fouls that uh, you don't want on Chris and Drew and Giannis. So they'll miss that with PJ. I it, it remains to be seen who's going to be taking up that role because it is definitely not Bobby Portis. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And again, this roster isn't really completed yet. John Horst and the Bucks, they like to, they like to mess around with it during the trade deadline, buy mm-hmm. on market. That's how they sort of formed their teams. That's how they got PJ. So it, We'll see what happens, but I'm a little concerned. I think they'll miss him a decent bit. I'm a little more concerned than some people, but I think they do have the necessary talent to maybe make it work by committee, like taking over that role by committee, whether it be a Pat, whether it be uh, maybe Shemi Ojale has a breakthrough. I can't believe I just said that. Uh, <laughs> like These sort of things can happen. Will they happen? that 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 remains to be seen yeah um and you know a couple of comments here larry golden says do you think pat Cons can play that role i'll defer to you i would say i'm skeptical of t- i think yes <laughs> skeptical. i don't think he can play the exact role as pj i think he can i don't know if i don't want to say approximate the exact value but i think he could probably generally speaking because i think he has a little more offensive juice whether it's the cutting you know he can i think he's a little more versatile of a shooter he's he's very see similarly a very good offensive rebounder um, so I don't know, do you like? Do you think he could like PJ could at least not PJ Pat could at least you know bring kind of a similar level of impact? Is that maybe the sixth, seventh, eighth best player on the team next year, assuming everyone's healthy? How do you how do you feel about Pat maybe having a little more response? And he might even have a bigger responsibility with Dante back. But how do you kind of feel about Pat at least carving out a PJ role in terms of maybe rotation standing, but doing so through his own you know skill set? I thought Pat Connaughton was absolutely phenomenal in the entire postseason run, Sands like game six against Phoenix. Uh, I thought like he, he definitely will have a big role in this team come playoff time because he's a favorite of Bud and he's proven that he knows exactly what he needs to do. He's going to be the guy that sneaks in for offensive rebounds. He can sort of be that sort of PJ role. He can sort of bully guys on the glass given he's not as big, but he still makes a worth because he's a very athletic guy. But what's going to be missed is Pat just on defense is not really at the level or even close to the level of a P.J. Tucker. He's gotten a little more sort of uh, balanced, per se. He used to just jump at everything. He was fooled by every pump fake. He was just showing off his vertical at times uh, when playing defense, trying to get blocks on jumpers, and it never worked. It was just leading to open shots. But he sort of toned that down a bit. But he's still not that sort of one-on-one defender. He's a better off-ball defender, a better team defender uh, than he has been in the past. And that's how he's carved out that role. I don't think he's ready for that sort of on-ball role, which is why I sort of said it's going to have to be by committee. Like, Pat's going to have to be that, like, crash-the-glass type of guy. And another guy's going to have to be that on-ball sort of stopper guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I thought I was really impressed with Pat last year as well, or last playoff run. Um but yeah, I think that's I think that's, that's fair. I just want to address that that question from Larry. Appreciate the question, Larry. Um, another thing I kind of want to talk about is you know Jesse uh, in here is saying I don't know how the Bucks create a one through five switchable defense without PJ. Um, I don't really disagree, but I think that the trade off could be you have more offensive juice with Dante back. Um, is that a fair assessment, Rohan? Would you would you say kind of? I know like I think Dante's a better player than PJ. I don't know if you feel differently or not otherwise, but like would that be kind of the trade off you're looking for? Is maybe you're not as Versatile in terms of just being able to switch every ball screen mindlessly and, and feel comfortable, um, but you have a little more offensive juice. You know, Dante's not someone you're going to run a bunch of offense through, but like you can at least like have him help facilitate a DHO in a way that PJ can't. Um, so would that be kind of how you maybe see the trade-off? Even if they're not quite as versatile defensively, they've got they're more versatile offensively. Is that is that a fair way to frame that? 
I think I think that's fair. Uh, Dante again leaps and bounds better on the offensive end than PJ, and just sort of what you can do, like you were talking about earlier, just the sort of stuff you can run with Dante compared to what you can run with PJ. It's just you're getting so much more dynamic on offense, and the defense will trail, and that's the trade off, like you mentioned. But the gamble here is the offensive uh, increase will outweigh the defensive loss. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I tend to agree. And um, before we shift to some Sixers stuff, you mentioned earlier how poor the guard depth was once Dante went down. The uh, The Bucks have done a little bit to try and remedy that, as you mentioned as well. That I think they'll have the, – the roster will not look the same now as it does come playoff time in one form or another. But what they've done already is they've signed George Hill and, and traded for Grayson Allen. So what do you think of those additions? How do you think they can kind of help things? Um, you know, obviously George Hill, you know, has – been in the Bucks system before and he's been a lot a good player for a long time struggled in Philly I think for a litany of reasons whether it was the long layoff and trying to you know assimilate himself to a playoff contender um, on the fly you know whether it was readjusting to basketball after three months off because of the thumb injury um, I think he'll be better honest like I, I've been saying that for a while I thought if the Sixers want to keep him he he would have played better this year but um, what do you think of those additions I mean how can they help because I, I think that's you know I, I like I think clearly the front office saw the the, the bench depth the bench guard depth, excuse me, um, was not great once Dante went down. So they tried to kind of address that. So how do you think those two can can bring some things in different ways? And what are you looking forward to their contributions offering? Uh, I'm very, very excited about both George Hill and Grayson Allen. I think Grayson Allen, uh, that addition, is one uh, stopgap for whenever Dante comes back. Uh, mm-hmm. because there's still been absolutely zero update mm-hmm. on what Dante's timetable is. They still never mm-hmm. even disclosed what the full injury was, which is just classic bucks. Uh, <laughs> but they just, they wanted to get sort of one of those guys who can just, you know, be slot in, be a good shooter, be a good defender, be a good team player, that sort of guy. And it's also maybe kind of a prove it for each of those two, because both of those two are eligible to really get paid this next off season. And if you see one is better than the other, you're sort of like, Oh, maybe we want to keep this guy, but not the other guy. It's sort of, it's both of those guys are sort of proving themselves for contracts. Excuse me. But I think he is a great addition. Grayson Allen. Uh, I'm very, very excited about him. I, I've been thinking maybe he's going to contend for Dante's spot, even when Dante comes back, which might be a little, uh, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but I just like what I see from Grayson Allen, but George Hill, uh, the problem with George Hill, like you mentioned, is he's always asked to do too much. And that's where he starts <laughs> to be a little disappointing because he always is uh, plays this role of being like, oh, he's a bench or a starting point guard. He can shoot the ball. He can handle the bar- ball. He'll sort of stabilize an offense. And he was great at that in Milwaukee as a backup point guard to Eric Bledsoe. The problem is come playoff time when Eric Bledsoe would fall apart. Uh, George Hill was just asked to be basically running the entire show in terms of being the primary point guard. And that's way too much to ask for George Hill. The thing is, he doesn't have to do that anymore because now we know that Drew Holiday is more than capable of being an elite starting point guard for a title team. So you can rely on him to be sort of a bench sort of uh minutes eating type of guy what you want to get uh drew holiday some rest you want to have some sort of fun lineups you can go small you can put uh you can put drew george chris dante out there if you really wanted to for some reason you could just have so many other options so with george hill it's great he's going to be a good shooter 
He has been a good shooter for years now from three. He just doesn't take as many. That's just That gets back <laughs> to what I was saying. The problem is mm-hmm. George Hill is when you ask him to do too much, he's going to disappoint. So this role on this team, he's never going to be asked to do too much because now they have that point guard that's clearly better in both the regular season and the postseason. So I think both of these additions have been great. Uh, I think it's... Uh, he might be playing a little too much into Bud's hands in terms of what he's going to do uh, <laughs> rotation-wise come playoff time because you're giving uh, giving him a fair few amount of very good players and you're going to see uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of minutes going around to different guys. But uh, like we mentioned earlier, Bud's, uh, Bud's sort of grown up a bit in terms of postseason play, so we'll see. But those two guys I'm very excited about. I, I saw Larry asked in the chat, what do you think about Mamu? Uh, Sandra, Mamu, Kayla, Shavili, their draft pick. Uh, he is a weird, very weird <laughs> player that I do he's not funky. see. He's it's it's very strange. I watched. I didn't watch as much summer league as I really thought I would. Uh, every time I sort of tuned in and saw what Sandra was doing, it was just bonkers because he was doing different things every single possession. And I think he could be interesting. I'm very very low on him in terms of what he's going to actually do for a Bucks team. Uh, maybe in like five years or three years, I should say, after he's played with the Wisconsin Herd for a bit. Maybe. We'll see if he can be maybe a backup for. I don't know. But he, he can pass the ball. He's he's weird. I don't know what he is. I just need to see him play. So that's my response to that. Yeah. Uh, I haven't watched a ton of him. Uh, I watched more of him two years ago when I was watching mostly for his teammate, Miles Powell. Um, but yeah, he's probably, I mean, and this could be an off base kind of read on him. He strikes me as a guy who kind of needs a little bit of freedom, but to kind of let things happen and experiment, see what he can do with his offensive versatility. And I just don't know if a team like the Bucks, who are, you know, clearly gunning for back to back tiles is the space for that. But yeah, that's, that's my issue. He's never going to see the reins and sort of have the Mm -hmm. ball as much as he needs to, to really thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with, with the G league, I mean, I think you'll, you will see that. I think it's, He's a different player than Paul Reed with the Sixers, but I think it's similar in that they both have very like loud games, and so they they need the freedom, and that's why I mean Paul Reed was awesome in the in the G League, but it hasn't been quite as good. You know, he wasn't didn't look as comfortable in the regular season with the Sixers last year. Again, those are different players, but broadly speaking, guys who like a little bit of freedom and need more freedom to thrive, um, make it's tough to kind of find your way on a on a team that's very good, like the like both the Bucks and the Sixers were last year, to varying degrees, of course, because the Bucks were a lot better. Um, but yeah, I think the George Hill thing is spot on. So what I what I hear tell me is that a team that was short on perimeter creation handling should not have made that their one uh, trade deadline move to try and shore up their perimeter creation worries with a guy who hadn't played in three months. Um, I guess the Sixers probably shouldn't have done that in hindsight or even in the moment. But um, anyhow, let's shift to the Sixers a little bit um, because, of course, this is a Sixers-centric podcast. Um the thing I wanted to ask you about, because I've, generally when I've had some guests on, I've just kind of asked for their broad thoughts on the Sixers, and we'll get to that in, in a little bit. But I'm I'm curious, do you see any kind of like parallels between some of the earlier Bucks teams and these and this current iteration of the Sixers, where they have a superstar with Giannis versus Embiid, and kind of a a less than ideal supporting cast, and and if so, kind of what's what would you try? I mean, if you could maybe put on your GM hat, how would you try and go about? figuring a way to to bridge that gap to you know to go to actually have have Embiid be capable of have the super the players around him excuse me to like let Embiid be that championship superstar yeah I I've seen a lot of parallels between the Sixers team and uh 
uh, teams of bucks past. I remember I was saying like two seasons ago when the Sixers were just like super massive with Al Horford. I was like, that's the, that's the 15, 16 bucks right there. Uh, (laughs) That's sort of ultimately disappointed. But this team as currently constructed, I think they do have the necessary talent. Obviously like Embiid is just a monster. He's going to be in the MVP race deservedly again this season he's just going to put up insane numbers because he's one of the best players in the league. And there's no denying that it's, it's fun to see these sort of teams go about it. Like, like you mentioned, what is sort of the ideal supporting cast? It's sort of, it's a trial and error sort of thing. You have to try different things and credit to the credit to the Sixers. They're trying different things because that's what you need to do. You can't just stay complacent, hope the same thing works, even though it's failed over and over again. That's how you lose players. That's how you lose teams. That's how you close windows. So mm-hmm. credit to the Sixers. They're not doing that. They're experimenting a bit. I do think if there's one, this is sort of, this is a lazy parallel, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, just sort of between like the Ben Simmons sort of issue that's sort of facing the Sixers or sort of topic is between like him and Eric Bledsoe. Again, lazy, lazy parallel. But in terms of what you can do around a guy who's not really suited with this team to play well in the postseason. Uh, given Ben Simmons, clearly a much better player than Eric Bledsoe, a different type of player, but in the sense that what do you do with that? How do you sort of go about that? Yeah, and just to just to kind of inter- make sure, like again, I, I think people aren't going to misread you, but like the idea that like they they are key players in your team in the regular season, and two that like you have given them significant contracts. And that's not just like I'm not trying to say like oh like they don't deserve that money or anything like that, but like it just complicates things in terms of your flexibility to try and improve around that so just didn't mean really cut you off but wanted me to kind of build upon that because i definitely see the parallel absolutely from a broad yeah. sense i think it's it's very similar where there are very good players in the regular season i mean Bledsoe had some excellent se- couple of excellent seasons in milwaukee and, and ben's been an all-star three years in a row including one all-nba season um but in the playoffs i mean largely kind of past the first round at least in ben's case um you can't re- you can't rely on them to be that same caliber of player but, but continue because i think that's a very very uh, apt uh, parallel broadly speaking yeah, it's sort of what you need to do to sort of rectify that issue. The Bucks went about it in the sense like, we're going to try this again. We were so close in year one. We lost to the Raptors in six games. Sure, we could have won that series. We're going to run it back. We're going to bring everyone back. We're going to sort of shore up our depth there. But we're going to keep our big three pieces the same. And lo and behold, they failed again. At some point, you have to realize that it's not going to work Um Give it, like Again, this is why I said it's a lazy parallel, because Eric Bledsoe and Ben Simmons were at very different stages of their career, in that uh, Eric Bledsoe was not a player who's still developing in that sense, while Ben Simmons mm-hmm. clearly is. It's uh, He's still at that stage where he's going to be adding new skills. He's still very young. It's just, when do you sort of see that marriage ending that's that's really what the Sixers front office has to be and again with recent developments that that is coming to a head what are you supposed mm-hmm. to do with Ben Simmons whose uh, whose camp is sort of saying what they're saying and threatening what they're threatening and his name clearly in trade rumors what are you supposed to do about that that's the big question in my opinion if I had to put on my GM hat like you had mentioned you it's tough. It, this is a franchise-altering decision. It is a it franchise-altering really decision. Yeah. I, I, I've never really had a lot of interest in, in being in the NBA front office, but absolutely in this case, I'm glad I get to to podcast and theorize about it rather than have to actually make these decisions play out. So anyhow, continue with your decision. <laughs> yeah. is, is still on. Continue with your, your view of these things. You just have to, you have to do it. 
You have mm-hmm. to do it. You have to have a player in mind, though. That's the thing. When the Bucks traded Eric Bledsoe, it was to get mm-hmm. Drew Holiday. You don't mm-hmm. trade a player just to trade him. Say, like, oh, we can't make this work. Let's try something else. You have to have a clear and present plan. Mm-hmm. And for the Sixers, you have to go get an elite perimeter or guard creator and player. Whether that be a CJ McCollum, it's looking less and less likely that's going to be a Damian Lillard. Whether that be like a, I don't know, like a Colin Sexton, Darius Garland sort of player. Mm-hmm. Uh, those type of players, you have to have a clear and present upgrade in your mind, and you have to go and get that. You have mm-hmm. to cut bait and say like, oh, we don't want to, we don't know, we don't want to attach anything. Ben Simmons is worth things plus other things and that sort of thing. You have to think about what are you doing with your team. Are you upgrading your team by attaching more assets to get a better player uh, and trading away Ben Simmons? Or are you just like doing it just to do it and just to get assets back to maybe go and get another player if a star is just gruntled in the future? You don't have time to play around. These windows, like I mentioned, they are short. Like the Bucks window may be like another two years because Brooklyn could end up being like a juggernaut and that the NBA has never seen. Like they may have had a one-year window. You just don't know with the NBA. Mm-hmm. You have to just do whatever you can in the shortest amount of time to make sure your team is the best it can possibly be. So whether mm-hmm. that is attaching more assets with Ben Simmons to get maybe someone who's not Damian Lillard, maybe who's someone who's not CJ McCollum, those sort of players that have been linked. You just have to go and get a better player, a better player who fits on your team. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I think when you say better player, and you can correct me wrong, you, it's kind of the idea like a, a better offensive fit in the second round. Of yeah, Giannis, better fit, kind of I should say. Better okay. fit. Yeah, okay. Because I think right now, like, like Ben is going to be the best player involved in a deal just based on who's available. And here's what I, and here's kind of the situation I've been advocating for, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, is what do you think about the idea of trading Ben for a couple, like maybe a starter and a role player and some picks with the idea that, like, if we get a young guy and we already have Max and we have Matisse and maybe we get this other guy who's pretty good and we have some picks to go along with it, maybe then when a star becomes available, we could be in the market. Because I, I don't think they're going to be a better, I don't think they're going to be closer to a title contender if Ben is the best player involved in the deal. And I think that's the case right now. So how do you think about that idea of maybe making a, a multi-step process? Again, it's, it's very tough. They're in a very tough position. Like they're just not going like there's the rally. It's probably not going to be a title contender regardless of whether, you know, they somehow remedy the situation with Ben, which doesn't seem likely, or even if they move him for, you know, multiple players and some picks. So how do you how do you feel about that idea of trying to like prime yourself to be best positioned for a star later because that's your best path to maximizing Embiid's prime right now is having the the flexibility to uh, you know, make a make a run for a star later because that's I mean that's what they have to do. I, mean, I know Ben is generally a star, but a, a star level perimeter creator. How do you how do you feel about that idea? I know it's risky but it but to you, does that do you see kind of where I'm coming from? Does that make sense? And how do you how do you feel about that idea of it's risky, but like maybe it maybe it's kind of the way to go about this situation? It is risky is an understatement. <laughs> that is the ultimate gamble because the downside of that is what if there's no other star? What if there's no mm-hmm. guy? What do you do then? You just sort of stuck. You mm-hmm. traded Ben Simmons for some role players and some picks that are eventually going to come to fruition. You're going to draft these players and then their value is going to go down. And then all of a sudden it's over. That is the downside. That is the mm-hmm. ultimate downside of that. Again, the upside is very, very high. That's why I said it's a, it's the ultimate gamble in that respect. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing that, 
you have to go all out. You have to not just trade Ben Simmons. You have to go and get the farm from multiple teams to be uh, the best, uh, have the best trade package for a future star. Because let's say whatever it is, are you going to beat like a, are you going to beat like a Houston? Are you going to beat an Oklahoma City in terms of like picks and young talent? In terms of a trade offer, given like the player involved is probably going to have some say in that, and yeah, that gets a little more I complicated. Say, I think that that's as I think that I don't know like if Philadelphia would ever have the best trade package, because as you mentioned, you know, teams, you know, th- those two teams plus New Orleans and maybe New York, like, but I but I think a guy like Dame, especially a guy like Dame, and even Beals, makes that will have you know sway over where they go. You've seen it with AD, you've seen it with Harden now. Um, that that would be kind of my counter to that, but I think you're absolutely right that like just trading Ben for maybe a decent starter role player and two or three picks, like, yeah, you're, you're like, it's a nice little thing to like, maybe you add, you add Maxi, maybe add Matisse and you've got a nice little package. It's not the best deal. So continue. I just want to add that little part, which you were alluding to already, but I think that is important, you know, as, as superstars agency and power becomes even more, you know, widespread. I think that sort of idea that they can kind of pick where they want to go does matter. And I don't, you know, like, Dame's not going to want to leave Portland to go to play for Oklahoma City or Houston, right? The idea is he wants to win. Like, he likes Portland in terms of a home and whatnot. It'd be somewhere where he feels his championship odds are much improved. But um, continue. I didn't mean to fully cut you off, but I did just think that was an important distinction that you were acknowledging as well, but I just kind of wanted to expand. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's where I was going to go next. It's just, obviously, they're going to be the biggest destination, right, for any star that wants to become available unless, like, I'm not even going to say unless. No one's... No one's going to go to New York. Like, that's just whatever. It's not going to happen. It, people have been saying it for 10 years now. It's it, whatever. It's not happening. People are going to go want to play for teams that can win. Philly is a team that is built to win right now and win at a high level. And the biggest piece of that is Embiid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you have a superstar, absolute superstar in his prime. You have to go and play with a guy like that. If you're a if you're a guard player, he's the best player you could ask for in terms of a star <laughs> teammate. If you're like a guard, if you're like a Damian Lillard per se, can you imagine Damian? You probably thought about this, like Damian Lillard and Embiid together is just that is basically <laughs> unstoppable. Like, what are you supposed to do about that? So that's the premier destination. Philly's going to be the premier destination. So if you can accommodate, like, or uh, sort of get those uh, pieces for a potential trade package, you should do it if you know that there is going to be a star available. You can't mm-hmm. do it and wait, like, a year because that's just wasting a year of Embiid. And that's just wasting yeah. a, a year of just, like, a shot. You have a shot. You can't like take these sort of years lightly. That's what I've mm-hmm. been learning throughout this process. You cannot take these years for granted because they will they will disappear within a blink of an eye. Uh, yeah, you're just you have to go for it as soon as possible. So if you know that there's going to be a player available, and like these teams, they know their stuff in terms of what's going to happen. If you yeah. if you have credible intelligence of a player who's going to want to request a trade later and wants to come to Philly and that that sort of comes to a head, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Even if you have an inkling, if you think it's worth the risk, absolutely, I think that's a great idea. You can go and you can get the pieces to make a later trade. That works because that still, in the end, is Ben Simmons leading to star X. So I think that yeah. could work if you have at least some semblance of information. Mm-hmm. 
I, and so a, a few things here. One, I would say you mentioned New York. I think, yeah, for a while it has kind of just been a pipe dream. But at the same time, like New York's better now, right? Like you, you run the risk of like another year of New York being quite good. And maybe maybe a Dame or a Beal or whoever else, you know, start to say, okay, the Knicks have been good for a couple of years and made some good moves. Like they've, they've got Randall. They've got R.J. Barrett takes another step forward. Maybe, you know, quickly looks better. Like or He was already good. So like I think generally speaking, yeah, the New York thing has always been kind of just it's New York. But like. Now the Knicks are good again, right? So I think that you run the risk of like one, it's New York. Two, like this is a legit team that has built some, had some really interesting roster moves. Two, I think you know you mentioned that like yes, it's a gamble, and maybe if you have if you have a if you have a player who's that you think could be available, but we also talked earlier how quick the, quickly the NBA moves, right? Like like do you play off of that? And and because you mentioned like also you know not squandering a year of Embiid's prime, like. At the same time, didn't they kind of just do that with Simmons already, right? Like, he was just had an MVP caliber year. He was great on defense in the playoffs. He was pretty good offensively despite some you know, late game throws, which I think are more a reflection of a lack of perimeter creation than anything on Embiid. Beyond just the idea he can't be your number one offensive player, which is fine. Most guys can't um, beyond the first round. But So that that would be kind of my counter is, one, like you're already kind of you've exhausted some of Embiid's prime as is with Simmons on the roster, and two, is it okay to maybe try and play on the unknown of the NBA because it moves so quickly? So how do you feel about, especially the second part, the unknown part of the NBA that we mentioned earlier, but also could be a factor here? Like, like maybe for instance, you know, a guy like Levine is someone that's been linked a lot. But like, what if the Chicago experiment goes wrong and he, you know, he's a he's a pending free agent still, or he's his he one year left, I believe. So like things like that, things happen. Like I'm sure there's maybe a name or two that could could surface over the next year that we don't know about. So how do you feel about even if like the Sixers don't feel confident that like or like don't feel confident or comfortable betting on Beal or Dane coming, but maybe they're banking the idea of the NBA move so quickly. How do you think about that as maybe factoring into how they proceed about things? I think that's probably, it's sound logic. Like we've seen time and time again, there's always going to be someone. We <laughs> Maybe not this year, maybe not this, this off season is, season is probably like the first time in forever that we're not seeing that sort of thing happen, which is just terrible timing if you're Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, but you're just, you're always going to see that happen. That's going to continue to happen. That's the nature of the NBA. So if you, if you want to play off that, I'd be like, I'd be okay with that. If you're, if you're the Sixers and you want to capitalize on that sort of entropy, like you're, you're fine. You're probably going to end up being right in that regard because it's proven time and time again, that it'll happen again and again. And you are setting yourself up to be the premier destination. Even I'd say they're even a better destination than New York, even if New York, still continues to be good yeah like, come on absolutely. it's still it's still I, philly you know, yeah i agree i just think it's important too to, you know not that you were like discounting them specifically right now but i think it's important to mention you know the knicks are you know like they're they're a winner again right now they're not like winning a bunch like obviously they're in the first round but you know they're at least a good team and they have some young players so i want yeah, to sure acknowledge that i know a lot of you know people in the national media will not will always bash the knicks and so i want to make clear that we are not bashing the knicks we are i am a pro knicks podcast here and <laughs> want to make i don't i i'm not anti-nicks i will say that I don't no i'm not i'm not anti-nicks either i'm just saying philly it would be a better decision. yeah yeah absolutely. that's all i'm saying and i i think you know what we're getting at here is there's there are there are many ways to go about this and you can probably understand it you can probably understand every different way they choose with that with the acknowledgement that that yeah i understand that but too like it might not work out like even if even if some player we don't know about asks out there's still going to be 20 other, 29 other teams who we could go to, and also it's in the hands of that front office at the at the at the, at the bottom line. You know, like of course, like player agency expands, but like it's still it's still like those players, those front offices still have the decision to, to pick where this where this guy's going to go, right? In, ter- in terms of like negotiating 
assuming obviously like another team has to be interested, but like there's just a lot of different ways things can go about there's a lot of I'm stumbling through this, but there are many options this front office has. All of them are risky. I can understand pretty much any decision they come to. Uh, and I can find ways to both find the optimistic side of it. And I can also be quite pessimistic about it. So um, it's a really tough spot to be in, but I think it, there's some flexibility, but it's a lot of flexibility with, with considerable risk, regardless of what decision they, they opt to, to go for. Yeah. And another thing, like I mentioned the uh, Eric Bledsoe, Ben Simmons thing, the Bucks were also facing the Giannis extension when that mm-hmm. happened. Like Giannis hadn't signed his Supermax yet. Like, and beat like you, and beats locked up. He signed it. Like, yeah, you yeah, signed it, yeah, like that's that's already taken care of. So you don't need to necessarily go like the Bucks had to do something. They had to make a big splash. So that's what prompted them, in addition to what I said earlier, to go and make that trade for Drew Holiday. Maybe they would have done that anyway. And that's what the Bucks like to say. They like to say, oh, we did this because we knew Giannis was staying. Sure, sure you did. <laughs> uh, yeah, he hadn't put pen to paper. <laughs> no, he hadn't said anything. <laughs> uh, you can say what you want to say. But... The Sixers aren't facing that dilemma, right? Mm. So you have also the option of what we haven't really talked about is just patience. You can just run this, see what happens. Again, like again, like you mentioned, you might be wasting a, a year of Embiid's prime if you're going back with something that you're not sure it actually works. So you, you know it doesn't work and you're still doing it anyway. That's the waste as well, like you mentioned. But you're also just playing to the... Uh, uh, the chaos that is the NBA. Because maybe if you wait a little bit, you can bypass this middle step that we've been talking about. Maybe you can just do the Ben Simmons for the next star player because that wasn't available six months ago or five months ago or whatever. Because it was, it, no one knew about it. You can, you can wait and see what happens in that regard. And if it doesn't, at the trade deadline or maybe after the season or whatever you want to say, then you can go and do that sort of middle step or two-step process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. And I think honestly, that's you know, I think that's kind of what the front office was trying to do for a while. Um, you know, they were trying to. Sit on that. I think it's a lot less tenable now because of the fact that Ben is effectively asked out, and kind of the pressure is ratcheting up. You know, it was one thing when it was like both sides were, were kind of you know under the idea. Like, I think Woj had an article right after the season, and like Rich Paul and whatnot met with some Sixers brass. You know, at the the NBA Combine, and it was like, yeah, we'll try and find a trade, but. Now, now the circumstances have changed, right? So I think that was kind of the idea is like either we're going to get a very, very nice package back for Ben or we're going to just ride it out and hope that a guy comes available and we have our 25-year-old all-star who has, you know, right now four years locked, you know, four years remaining on his deal. And that's something that we can really kind of put forth in a trade package for for a different star or a better star, better perimeter star, I should say. Um, now I think it's a little less likely, but at the end, the Embiid Supermax thing I think does matter, um, you know, like he's always shown a big commitment to Philly. Of course, pretty much every superstar before the ass out has said the same. Um, but, I, but I do think there's a little more patience you know, in terms of that side of things. At the same time, you know, Joel is going to turn 28 in March. Um, and so like, you know, you're kind of right in the middle of this prime. You've probably got, you know, a, I mean, usually kind of a prime is roughly about three years, more or less. So you've probably got about two to three years left of assuming MB can be this MVP caliber player. Because um, I think he is, you know, notably better than he was even two years ago, and he's still a top tenish guy. And so, and that's how you can win a title. Like, I, don't, I don't know if Embiid of two years ago was a guy that I would have said that you could clearly win a title with the, with the proper supporting cast around him as your best player. Now I do think he can be that guy. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the Supermax thing, yeah, that helps. But at the same time, like 
he arrived his prime, so you can't be patient forever, right? And you're, you're not saying that, but I'm just adding kind of some, some complicated matters. We've had some optimistic lenses that we've framed this through, but um, it really is a tough situation. So um, anything else you wanted to add about, about this thing? This has been a really interesting conversation, this end part of it. Um, anything you want to kind of add before we wrap up for the, uh, for the evening? Appreciate you coming on, of course. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. I think we're either going to see, if we don't hear anything within the next two weeks, it's not happening before the season. Hmm. Even though we've got like around 40 days until the season starts. Yeah, we, yeah, we do. Oh my goodness. Um, but what's, I would be curious, what's the, what's kind of the thought process behind it? Not that I necessarily disagree or you feel strongly one way or the other, but I'm curious kind of just to hear the rationale behind that, that declaration. Because then we're going to start seeing, I mean, given, I'm not saying it for certain, obviously, but mm-hmm. if we're, if we're getting past that sort of two-week period, like I mentioned, then we're sort of getting back into training camp and all the teams are doing their things. And if you're, if if Ben Simmons and his camp are actually serious about like, oh, we're not going to show up to training camp, that will already have been made. That like actual firm declaration will already have been made because guys are going to start arriving to training camp. And if Ben Simmons isn't there, it's like, oh, okay, I guess I guess we're not doing this. Uh, so they're going to, they're going to make a trade within that sort of window, or they're going to be like, okay, I guess we're going to go about the season. We're going to do this. And then we're going to see what happens closer to the trade deadline mm-hmm. or in the off season. Because if you, if you try to do things right before the season starts, that gets a little messy. And that's why mm-hmm. that's sort of, those sort of trades are kind of rare. They either happen like, uh, a month or month and a half before the season, or they happen like after the season starts, like we saw with James Harden. Yeah, I, that's that's fair. I think that's a really good point. You know, it's the Harden thing you relate to the Sixers directly with the Jimmy Butler deal, um, where he played I think three or four games and um, about as apathetic as I've seen Jimmy Butler play defense in those games with the Wolves. Honestly, um, he was clearly a man who would like to get out of there. Um, but but yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I just kind of want to get your explanation on it. But I think that's absolutely a, a point, and I think you could you could pitch me on it. I'm kind of you know agreeing with you there, but Rohan, really appreciate you hopping on here today. That was a really insightful conversation. Um, let the people know where they can find you, follow your work, and, and all that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at r k a t t i j r. You can follow the uh, the Eurostep Podcast Network, uh, part of Blue Wire Pods, like you mentioned earlier. Just uh, wherever wherever you get podcasts, we talk NBA, we talk Bucks, we talk. Uh, a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. We'll have some narrative stuff coming soon. It'll, it's, it'll be a fun time. It's, it's your one-stop shop for all Bucks content. So that's, that's my plug. Heck yeah. Um, appreciate you coming on. Really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate everyone for listening, whether it's in the room currently or as a podcast after the fact. I'll be back in the next couple of days to talk about some more Sixer stuff. I do have a mailbag to get to. Appreciate everyone who fielded questions for that or suggested questions, excuse me. Um, but in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. Talk to all of you again soon.